It is great to be back. Last weekend, I spoke at a men's conference and preached in a church in the Czech Republic. I had an awesome time. Um, even though the Czech Republic is a former Soviet bloc country and still, uh, to this day, notoriously atheistic, I was really encouraged by what I saw uh, God doing in, in people's lives, the number of uh, young people that are standing for Christ, the maturity of older people have been th through so much under communism, later um, Sovietism, and um, it, was, it was a rich, rich time. The big question, of course, facing Europe right now, we're all reading about this, is what do we do about Islam in this uh, historic Christian continent? While I was in the Czech Republic, there were mass anti-Islam demonstrations in, in Prague. Now, Europe, in, in spite of its history, its uh, uh, tradition, suffers today from a wholesale religious vacuum. And Islam is uh, attempting to fill that. Now, if you follow what's going on in Europe, you, you know that um, in Europe, Germany is the economic, the in many ways, the intellectual leader of the European Union. And a woman by the name of Angela Merkel is the chancellor of Germany. Now, what you may not know, you may not have read or seen on TV, is that she is the daughter of a Lutheran pastor, and she is a, a woman of, of some sort of faith. Now, on Monday of this past week, I was coming home, and I was in Munich, and I grabbed the, the Monday European edition of the Wall Street Journal, and I read an article, actually a series of articles, on what's going on in Europe following the terrorist attacks in, in Paris, and it was very interesting reading about uh, Chancellor Merkel's uh, response to this. Uh, she went so far as to declare Islam a part of Germany. We welcome Muslims, uh, she said. Um, she appeared following the terrorist attacks at a, a, a vigil, a, a prayer vigil, a reconciliation vigil that was sponsored by um, the Muslim elders um, where she was. And what I want you to understand, this leader of the European Union is saying there's a place for Muslims in Germany, and she should say that. Uh, uh, that is absolutely right. But in this article, she goes on, and I want you to, to listen to this. At the same time, Chancellor Merkel acknowledged German unease about how Islam fits into its Christian tradition. In a newspaper interview released on Thursday, now let me get this quote up here. It's what I've underlined. Uh, Mrs. Merkel called on German Christians to speak more often, more confidently about their Christian values. What? The Chancellor of Germany. That's an incredible, that, that's a, 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 an amazing statement. How, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ respond to, to Islam around us? Not by going silent, not by cowering in fear, not by abandoning our faith, uh, not by shutting the doors to immigrants and being hostile and, and full of hate, but by speaking more frequently and more confidently about Jesus. 
about who he is and what he has done. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal, on, in that interview, in that day, she sounded just like the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> now, I say all this to encourage you. Because Chancellor Merkel's right. The solution to geopolitical upheaval. Uh, cultural turmoil. Family marriage issues and dysfunction isn't the absence of Jesus. It's the reassertion of Jesus. And here, a secular leader is calling for the church to speak up more frequently, more confidently. If you're looking for a New Year's uh, resolution and you haven't found one yet, man, let me invite you to, uh, to make it this one. Uh, to decide, man, I, I, I'm going to say yes to that. And I'm going to speak up more frequently. I'm going to speak up more confidently uh, about Jesus because I want to be a part of the solution to the problems in the world. Crazy what's going on in the world today. There's an intensification of unbelief. And at the same time, there's an intensification of belief. And we are always navigating different currents. Now today, this morning, we are in an Old Testament series on David, King David. And today, I want you to see not only what this Old Testament story we're going to look at tells us about God, but I want you to see here a thousand years before the advent, that is the birth of Jesus Christ, what it reveals about why Christianity is alone the solution or the hope for the world. So turn with me in your Bibles, grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now let me just say, our commitment here at Wheaton Bible Church is to teach the Bible, to preach the Bible on Sunday. So I want you to bring a Bible. I, I want you to underline in your Bible, highlight in your Bible. You can do that electronically as well. Kids, I want you to tell, to tell your parents to bring Bibles. But if you don't have a Bible, no worries, because we have Bibles in the racks in front of you. And man, I want you to grab one, and if you need a Bible in your home, you, you can take one. Don't tell anybody I said that, but you can take one. And, and you're saying, well, I don't know where 2 Samuel chapter 7 is. Well, it's about page 300. Give or take a couple of pages. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bibles, and I want you to follow with me as, as I read. Now, what you need to know as a matter of Old Testament history is this is not only one of the most important chapters in the life of David, this is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament because of the promises God makes here to David. So verse 1. After the king, that would be David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest, rest, from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar. Now that's luxury. 3,000 years ago, that was a sign of abundant luxury. While the ark of God remains in a tent. Now he's referring to the tabernacle. The tabernacle, uh, the tents um, uh, uh, of God, uh, uh, all, all the fabric was involved in that. Now hundreds of years of old, old kind of, 
worn around the edges, maybe a little moldy. Uh, David senses that. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving. Now underline, circle the word moving. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Uh, God say, no, I, know, I never said that. Verse 8, now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from following, um, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to being a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. And for the sake of emphasis, God says it again. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This was revelation from God. Then the king David went in and sat down before the Lord and said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of your house and of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for your sake, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Now what I want to do this morning, instead of focusing on the covenant God makes, I want to focus on our covenant making God. In other words, instead of zeroing in on the incredible promises here, and the promises here God makes to David are incredible, I want to zero in on our promise-keeping God. And I want you to see two attributes or characteristics of God here, what God reveals about himself, and why they tell us that Christianity, and I know this is a crazy, bold, not politically correct statement, why Christianity alone is the hope of the world. So we're going to look at these two, then I'm going to draw out some implications quickly at the end. So reason number one, Christianity's hope of the world, according to this Old Testament chapter, is because of the presence of God. Now go back to the beginning of this chapter. Here we learn that Israel finally is at rest. 
Now, America today, what, not quite 240 years old? Been around a while? But when we come to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, Israel has already experienced double that. 500 years of slavery, oppression, injustice, plague, and war. And now finally, after five centuries, David has destroyed Israel's enemies. And the country is experiencing an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity uh, never known before. And David wakes up one day, looks around and realizes, hey man, I live in this cedar palace. And you know what? I need to build a temple for God. And that's a good thing. That's a good desire. But God says no. Actually, God says not yet. And he explains why to David by telling David two things about himself. And the first, according to verses 6 and 7, is that I am always, always present. God says, I'm not like the other gods, goddesses of wood and stone. You know, you can leave them behind. You can break them. They can be forgotten. God says, I am a living being. And I am the, the kind of God who always, always lives with my people. And when they move, I move. When they move, I move. I am not a disinterested God that lives in a remote, isolated palace, or spends my days in an ivory tower, um, isolated. No, 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 I'm totally different. When my people suffer, I suffer. When my people experience harsh, brutal uh, desert conditions, I'm right there. When my people live in tents, I live in a tent. When they move, I move. Now, in time, God will allow David's son, Solomon, to build a temple. But God is saying to David here, not having a, te a temple is no thing for me. No, no big deal. Because regardless, I am always, always present with my people. Now, this is incredible. Hard to get our minds around this. And it's also incredible, it's even more incredible because here this points to Jesus Christ who will come in a thousand years. Because Jesus who was fully God left his throne in heaven and became a man. Emmanuel. God with us to, to dwell among us, to, to tend to move among us. And Jesus, as a man, lived a life of poverty, experienced hunger and, and thirst, had no place, we're told, to, to lay his head. And he came to be with us, to do for us what we could not do without him. And when he returned to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all those who say yes by faith to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So the presence of God here in 2 Samuel 7 points to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus. 
Now, in today's context, uh, the reason Christianity is the hope of the world is because God is not a distant, the God of the Bible is not a distant, uncaring, condemning being. God is like the good parent of a toddler. He's always there, always present. And his presence overcomes our impotence, our brokenness, our weakness, our dysfunction. And gives us an incredible confidence. Guarantees our, our, our protection. Because we know God will lead us, God will guide us, God will take care of us. And it's this presence of God that in us, among us, that makes Christianity unique. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Well, one thing it means is when you go to work, God goes to work. When you go to work, God goes to work with you. When you go to school, Jesus goes to school with you. When you come home and you're coming, stepping into a difficult, uh, fragile uh, situation, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit goes with you. When you're up to your eyeballs in, in, in stress or when you feel lonely, you feel unappreciated, underappreciated, um, you feel rejected, God, the God of the Bible is right there. When you move, God moves. Now, if you get this, if you get this presence or incarnational principle, it delivers you from the insanity of performance, having to uh, uh, perform. It will give you a peace. It will give you a, 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 a contentment and a security that will sustain you in anything. Now, let me illustrate this for you. In First and Second Samuel, we see David, this great godly warrior king, this shepherd, this leader. Uh, we see him from the outside. But when we come to the Psalms, the Psalms of David, we see David from the inside. We get a look at his inner thoughts, what's going on inside of him. And apparently this presence principle, the presence of God, this attribute of God was such a big deal to King David that he wrote one of the most famous of all Psalms, extolling it. Psalm 139. Look at a section of this psalm with me on the screen. David writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It's impossible. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me. Notice this language, your right hand will hold me fast. Now, for a, a period of some months now, we have the privilege of having our, our, our kids who are living in Asia as missionaries here, and that means we have this little bundle of love, our three-year-old granddaughter, Eliza, with us. Now, Eliza's just a little bitty thing, kind of like this. Uh, she's just a little peanut of a person, and she kind of walks around our house, and one of her favorite expressions is she likes to come up to Rhonda and me and say, will you hold me? Now, it's really not a question. It's a statement. And the statement is, I want you to hold me. Now, I only get to see this granddaughter that lives in Asia once every year, year and a 
half or so. So what do you think as a grandfather I'm, I'm going to think and say? You know, no, the game's on. You know, uh, 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 Eliza, uh, uh, sorry, I, I'm too busy. I will drop everything, stop everything to hold my granddaughter and, and to pull her in close, and to go upstairs, downstairs, wherever she wants to go, go sit in the bathtub with our clothes on, that's what we did the other day. And my love for my granddaughter is infinitesimal compared to God's love for you. Infinitesimal. And the text tells us God holds us by his mighty, his mighty right hand. So David, let me ask you a question. David, how in the world did you get through all the difficulty and the darkness when you were fleeing year after year for a decade or so from Saul, knowing at any minute you could turn the corner and there would be Saul and his army and you would be killed? And David's response, I never lost sight of the presence of God. I never forgot that when... Uh, uh, I, I move, God moves. Uh, David, how about those moments that, that anger was welling up inside of you and, and you, were, you felt like you, you were going to unleash this attitude? I knew God was present with me. And I'd lean in, I'd lean in, I'd lean in as a strong man to the presence of God. And what David knew about God revealed here in 2 Samuel 7, we see much more vividly relative to the presence of God in the advent of Jesus Christ who came and lived among us. This is incredible. And Christianity is the hope of the world because God gives us his presence demonstrated most vividly in his son sustained by his spirit to guide us and to lead us and to hold us and to take care of us. Let's go on. There's a second attribute of God I want you to see, and it's the grace of God. Second reason Christianity is the hope of the world. And the grace of God is right here in the Old Testament. We see this beginning in verse 4, when you, or verse 8, rather. When you look at verse 8, God talks about David's past. And God says, hey, hey, hey David, um, uh, you, may think, uh, you may be tempted to think your success is your doing, uh, but it's not. I took you, notice the language, I took you from following sheep to ruling people. It's grace. David, it's grace. David, you didn't earn it. David, you don't deserve it. You, you were following sheep. And yes, it was hard at times, and, and you were, uh, there were times you thought you were going to die, and life was very, very difficult. Uh, but I did this because I love you. It's grace. It's my grace. I'm making you a man, a strong man, and I'm reconstructing from the inside out. Now that's verse 8, beginning in verse 9. God moves to the present, talks about present grace, and this is a matter, interesting, fascinating matter of history. Because in the ancient Near East... Typically, kings would be, build temples for their gods or goddesses. 
And they would do that so they could receive uh, blessings from the god or the goddess. Now, archaeologists over the decades have uh, uncovered all sorts of inscriptions that indicate this pattern, this order, that would be finalized by the priest pronouncing a blessing on the king and his kingdom. God will protect you, you will prosper, you have military success, whatever. So, for example, one of the inscriptions we have uncovered comes from Tutmos, the king of Egypt. And he uh, 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 announces the, the building of, of the temple, and, and sure enough, the priest announces that uh, the god Amun-Re is going to bless uh, Tetmos. We see this pattern everywhere. It's a matter of history. Except here. The Bible turns this upside down. Inside out. In verses 11 and 12, God says, David, you want to build me a house? That's nice, but uh uh-uh. I'm going to build you a house. And by the way, when uh, God speaks to, uh, or or when David speaks to God about building a house, uh, David is talking about a physical structure, but when God talks to David about building a house, God is talking about a dynasty, offspring, king after king from his loins. And what God does here is historically unprecedented. It's unique. It's totally countercultural. I would say to you it's totally extreme. Because in all other religions, whether back then, what, 3,000 years ago, back 4,000, 2,500 years ago, in all other religions, and even down to today, spiritual blessing is attained by merit. It's attained conditionally. You do this, then you will be blessed. But in Christianity, represented, revealed here in this Old Testament passage, a blessing, spiritual blessing, is received unconditionally. By grace. David, you're not going to build me a house and receive a a, a blessing. I don't operate that way. I'm going to build you a dynasty and and a kingdom, not because of anything in you, not because of who you are, not because of what you do, but because I'm a God of grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's one way love that has nothing to do with the object. And the reason I can so boldly assert that Christianity alone is the hope of the world is because Christianity alone operates on grace. And it's here in the Old Testament. And it's this grace that overcomes our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness, our envy, our prejudice, our, our, our hate. Now, Eugene Peterson is an author, professor, pastor, And commenting on this passage, he had this insight into David, and he writes, I think that David here in 2 Samuel 7 is about to cross a line. He's about to cross over from being full of God to being full of himself. Outwardly, everything is the same. He isn't conscious of doing anything different. He's not self-aware of any shift within. But David, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, received all this acclaim in Israel, is heady with success, and now he's about to do God a favor. 
going to build him a house. And if David continues along these lines, he will be ruined as God's king. If any of us develop a, a self-identity where God's actions are subordinated to our actions, then our kingdom work will also be ruined. There are moments in all of our lives when we need a friend, when we need a pastor, when we need a, a, a prophet to step in and do for ourselves what we're unlikely to do. And so Nathan stops David in his tracks and says, no, you won't build God a house. God's going to build you one. And this is why God shuts the door on David. And whenever God shuts the door on us, whenever God uh, says no, he always has his reasons. We just don't always understand them at the moment. Now, yes, for David, in David's case, part of it is he's a man of bloodshed. We're told that elsewhere in the uh, historical accounts. But also, uh, apparently, uh, David could right have been on the edge of ruin, arrogance. And here God wants to give David a greater grace. No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to give you a dynasty. Now, do you see how this points to Jesus Christ? Other religions, all other religions, when you peel it away, ultimately are about you earning your way to God by doing this, not doing that. It's salvation by works. Christianity is unique. God sent his son who lived a perfect life a life we could not live to fulfill our obligation to the perfect law, the perfect standards, the perfect righteousness of God. And God sent Jesus to die the death we deserve to die to bear our liability for our sin. So Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death enabled him to fulfill our obligation before God and our liability our debt before God. So in Jesus Christ, when we come to Jesus Christ, and if you haven't come to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Well, when we come to Jesus, Jesus takes away our sin and credits to our account. God credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect record. He pays your bills, pays your debt, gives you assets that are out of this world. And it's grace. It's grace. It's the grace principle. We see the presence principle and the grace principle. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. Now let me take uh, this uh, just a step further quickly and line out this grace. Look at verse 12. This grace is so extraordinary that death does not annul this. God will give David offspring. Then you jump to verse 14, and we're told that sin, even the sin of subsequent uh, descendants of David, can't destroy it. And then according to verse 16, maybe we have the most vivid uh, description of grace here. Time can't ruin it. 
Twice in verse 16, God tells David his throne will endure forever, be established forever. And ultimately, all of this points to Jesus Christ, the, the descendant of David, whose throne will never end. Uh, Jesus who will rule forever and ever, who will conquer sin and, and death. So these two principles, the presence principle, the incarnation principle, and the grace principle, set Christianity apart from all other religions. And it's the reason today, 2015, in Europe, Christianity is the hope of the world. In Asia, in Africa, in your neighborhood. Because God's presence overcomes our brokenness, God's grace overcomes our alienation, our need for forgiveness. Now quickly, four practical implications. If this is true, if these two principles are true, it means right now, today, there is hope. There is hope. God's, I mean, think about God's promise to David. It is this dynasty that will, that will last forever, forever, forever. And that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it also uh, tells us, as the rest of the Bible tells us, that means Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's coming back to establish his reign that will endure throughout eternity. That means Jesus Christ is coming back and you're going to be forever different. It means the trees one day are going to dance and, and the mountains are going to clap for joy. And it means if you know Jesus Christ, if you come to Jesus Christ, you have been created for unending eternal glory. And so our hope isn't in our circumstances. Our, our, our hope isn't in our political alliances. All of that is temporary. Our hope is in the one who said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our hope is in this reality that Jesus is holding me by his right hand and he has wrapped his arms around me and he will guide me, he will hold me, and he will never let me go. And so when you're in a tough place and, and your heart is saying, oh, God, will you hold me? Uh, will you hold me? God's answer is always, always yes. Yes. Second thing this means. This presence and grace principle means there is love. It means that we live in a universe where the primary fundamental impulse underlying everything is love, God's love. Now, now God uh, uh, doesn't have to be present among us. He doesn't have to give us grace, but he does because he loves us. God loves you. God will never lose track of you. God will never fail you. God will never uh, uh, forget about you. Now, we love others. We accept others who are different than us or unkind to us. We forgive others. We serve others because we know God loves us. And we know because we are loved, we don't worry. Martin Luther, centuries ago, said worry was a form of ruling the world, attempting to rule the world instead of letting God. And it means you think you know how everything should go, so you're going to worry about it because it may not go according to your plan. 
But if we understand at the core of our being, on the inside, that God loves us and that he has our back and that he will fight for me, then we don't need to worry. I mean, if God made the mountains, he can handle your problems. You are loved. Let God rule. Third, this means the best life is a life of submission and obedience. Shortly after I came to Christ in college, um, I had the privilege of leading one of my sister's closest friends to the Lord, at least I thought. Some time went by, some months went by, she came back to me and she said, um, you know, Rob, um, Christianity didn't work for me. Now, when somebody says that to you, uh, Christianity didn't work for me, let me tell you usually what's going on. What's going on is their submission or their obedience was conditional. It was, well, well God, I'll, I'll obey you. I'll, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll do this if you do that. If you give me this boyfriend, if you give me this job. And that conditional obedience never works. The hardest thing to give in, the hardest thing to give is in. Now, let me say that again. The hardest thing to give is in. To submit. To obey. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, David sat. David sat down. He turned from his agenda. He turned from his plan so he could stand on the promises of God. And the real action, the real dynasty began at that moment. Instead of David making God a house, God began to make David one. And when you get God's presence, when you get God's grace, when you submit and you sit and you obey, man, look out. God is going to use you. God is going to bless you. Fourth, finally, there's worship. The second half of this chapter is one long worship service, one long worship statement. And what we have is the picture of a strong man, this mighty warrior, living in awe of God, living in wonder of God. And according to verse 18, it starts with humility. Worship is born in humility. Who am I, God? Who in the world am I? And it leads to wonder, it leads to joy, it leads to reverence. And so as we come into this new year, you don't need more money. You ultimately don't need a better job or a better marriage. You need a deeper experience of God's presence and God's grace. And it's freely available to you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we worship you and we praise you for all you give us in your Son, for the incredible work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your presence and your grace that has come to us in Jesus. And we ask God now that as we worship you, you would be speaking to us. Drive these truths 
deep into the depths of our soul. Amen. Let's stand.